So this evening I'd like to talk about our speech practice in the context of the whole spiritual path of awakening. What does our speech practice look like and how is it connected with coming to greater wisdom and compassion, love, whatever qualities you may take to be central to, to what this is all about, this, this intention to, to grow, to, to learn, to explore, to be most fully who we are at our, de- at our depths. And I'll invite you as we listen and as I speak to begin to do some of the practices which we'll explore tomorrow. And in particular, a practice that we'll begin to explore tomorrow is combining an inner awareness with an outer awareness at the same time. So for the next period of time, we'll be doing a kind of speech practice, which will be a listening practice. And I'll invite you, as you listen, as it were, more externally, also listen internally. That might mean to have some awareness of your body, to track maybe any responses or reactions uh, on an emotional level, a cognitive level, just to begin to have not just the attention going outward, as it often does in our lives when we're attending to something, but also to have that inward attention. And we'll be exploring that a lot more, and I'll say a little bit about that later, later in the talk. So I thought I would tell... Uh, my story about when I started to take um, speech practice more seriously, when I started to look more carefully at what sometimes is called uh, right speech in the Buddhist context. And I was, um, I had been practicing about, uh, probably about three or four years. I was in my 20s. And a very close friend of mine said, you don't pay much attention to right speech, do you? <laughs> well, leaving alone the question of whether that was showed her capacity for right speech. <laughs> uh, leaving that question aside, uh, I had to admit that it was true. I thought she had actually been quite accurate, that I uh, was interested in meditation, but I wasn't really so attentive with my words, and she would know because we were, we were uh, very close friends. And something really sparked at that point. I said, huh, I want to be conscious with my speech. I want to be aware. I, I want to really have my speech be continuous with my interest in meditation and awareness and so forth. So for me, I can really date that interest uh, from that point quite a number of years ago. And so I really thank my, my friend for saying that wasn't the only provocative thing that she said <laughs> to me. So, um, and so we each here are drawn to deepen that speech practice. And as I mentioned last night, there's um, it's so crucial to the well-being of our world, to the well-being uh, of our lives, 
of our relationships that I think we know that a few poorly chosen words or insensitive words can have so much harm. Unskillful words can start wars. They can start conflicts. They can estrange friends from each other for years. Just a few words. Perhaps unkind words can sometimes trigger us, can, can trigger us by somehow going right into our wounds. And we can have just a few words can reduce us to being totally caught in our wounded territory. I think we know that. Um, even people who do a lot of meditation practice aren't necessarily skillful with their speech. It's interesting that there have been quite a number of uh, Buddhist communities where people found that when things got a little rough, wise speech wasn't always there. And so several communities have said we need to complement our meditation practice with the training in nonviolent communication. Several monasteries have done that. It's quite interesting. You know, or I was thinking, some of you know the spiritual teacher Ramdas, and I remember hearing him talk once, and he said, this was he was talking of his own experience, but it may resonate with you. He said, he said, you know, um, with my relatives, um, a generally spiritual practice goes out the window when things are charged. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think that always has to be the case, but he was speaking from experience. And, 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 in, and in some of our charged areas, it's particularly hard to have wise speech or right speech. And yet we also know that that speech can be incredibly healing, that if I'm feeling really down or vulnerable, one friend who understands makes incredible difference, right? One friend that sometimes doesn't even have to say anything, can just listen, you know, with care and with love. And we know that, I think from our personal experience, that someone who has warm and clear, incisive speech can be such a, such a blessing. You know, and that maybe we've also seen in social situations and conflict situations, or maybe in some of our workplaces, those who are skillful with speech can often really be tremendously helpful. And of course, our aim of our retreat is that we increase the number of people who are incredibly helpful with their speech by the number of people who are attending this retreat. That was a convoluted way of saying, <laughs> we have high hopes for you. <laughs> and you're, you're bringing skillful speech into your own lives. And it was very moving to hear some of the background of people to know that we'll have you know, a large number of people having more skillful speech. And as teachers, it's what, several what um, defense attorneys, uh, directors of hospitals, you know, it was, you know, as well as uh, just friends and relatives and so forth. So activists, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, father of activist, <laughs> you know, so it's, um, 
It really can be a tremendous uh, gift and power to have, have that quality of speech developed more, more carefully. And yet I want to really start tonight by, by saying that our aim here is to help us all become more skillful with speech. But really, the deeper aim of why we're here is to have our speech practice be an integral part of our practice to awaken. And that the center of gravity really is with the quality of awakening, that this is what the aim is of our practice. And we want to have our times of speech be an integral part of the growth process, of the learning process. But it's very helpful to see that the speech practice is in this larger context of awakening. So this evening, I want to talk some about awakening, some about the path to awakening, and mostly about the different forms of speech practice that we'll explore in the retreat here and how those are part of a path of awakening. And this will be a kind of an overview that'll help really open up the territory that we'll start exploring in more depth in a practical way with exercises and ways of working experientially uh, tomorrow morning and that we'll we'll, um, continue with. So what what is awakening? You know, awakening is the metaphor used by the Buddha He called himself a Buddha, which means an awake one. So it's a metaphor that in some ways our life is like being in a dream. And that it's possible to wake up from the dream. In other words, that we live in a certain kind of confusion or delusion or ignorance that's quite pervasive. Even with our advanced degrees. There's ignorance. Some say, the more you go to school, the more you have to unlearn. <laughs> I've heard that said by people. And so what does, what does that awakening mean? What, what was the awakening for the Buddha? In a simple way, awakening means awakening to our deeper nature. And we speak about that in, often in very simple ways. It means awakening to a deeper nature of love, of wisdom. And a teacher like the Buddha, similarly to teachers in other traditions, make the claim that at our core, there's something quite amazing and beautiful and that all the difficult stuff is more superficial. It's a very optimistic view of who we are, saying that at our core, there is love, there is wisdom, there is compassion, there is a kind of beauty and brilliance in our being. And spiritual practices, in a very simple way, only try to help us access those beautiful qualities. In the teachings of the Buddha, he said it this way at one point. He said, luminous is this mind and heart 
This people who do not practice do not really understand. They don't cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands. For them, there is cultivation of mind and heart. So it could be a luminosity, a quality of love, wisdom, clarity, understood in different ways. In the Buddhist tradition, the qualities of an awakened mind and heart are connected with mindfulness, connected with great energy, connected with joy, connected with curiosity and the sense of inquiry, with tranquility, with concentration, with equanimity. (coughs) And we come through spiritual practice to live more and more in these awakened qualities. And that's really, again, a very simple way to talk about our practice. We come to live more and more and come to know more and more that this, in a sense, is who we are. That this is who we are most deeply. And we have a kind of shift of our center of gravity from a more limited sense of who we are to this expanded sense of who we are. That's really the path of awakening. And we can look in the story of the Buddha and see how he himself went on a kind of journey of awakening. That the Buddha at the beginning of his journey lived in profound delusion and ignorance, maybe more than we experience. That's good news. The Buddha was really, really deluded, in large part because of his parents. So, <laughs> so um, you may have had much better parents in that sense. Not joking a little bit, but, but actually what happened, as many of you know the story, was that the Buddha's parents received a prophecy that he would be a great sage, or he'd be a great ruler. They had their preference for the ruler, for him to be a great ruler. They didn't want him to be a great sage because they knew that meant he would leave home and probably wander around and, you know. They wanted him to be a ruler, and they had a strategy to help him become a ruler, which was that they sheltered him from any sign of suffering. He had, in his life in the palace, he had all the pleasures imaginable. And he thought this was what life was about, just living in a comfort zone all the time with pleasant experiences. And so they actually sheltered him from any experience of death, from most experiences of suffering, illness, old age, and so forth. This is... uh, a Buddhist scholar named Bhikkhu Bodhi describing the situation. Throughout his youth and early manhood, Prince Siddhartha lived in complete ignorance of the most elementary facts of human life. His father, anxious to protect his sensitive son from exposure to suffering, kept him an unwitting captive of ignorance, incarcerated in the splendor of his palace, amply supplied with sensual pleasures and surrounded by merry friends. 
the prince did not entertain even the faintest, faintest suspicion that life could offer anything other than an endless succession of amusements and festivities. So perhaps we at times have had lives like that, or maybe we have had aspects of our lives in which we've been sheltered. Perhaps not, but for many people in this culture, there is a lot of that sheltering. And so his journey ultimately punctured that bubble, we might say. And the story is that drawn by curiosity, he left the palace. And you can think of all of this as quite metaphorical. He left his cocoon. He left the palace and he went out on successive evenings. And on the first evening, he saw for the first time an old person. Never seen that before. Shocked. The second night, he saw a dying person. The third night, he saw a corpse. The fourth night, he saw a yogi or a mendicant, someone who had dedicated his or her life to the spiritual path. These are called in the Buddhist tradition the, the four divine messengers who somehow told him there's more to our lives than you think. And I imagine that each of us are only here because you know or have an intuition that there's something more than the conventional life that we're given in society. Right? Even with certain levels of success or achievement. I think we're here because we know that there, there, there's something in some ways deeper or more profound that's possible. At least we have an inkling of that. There's a, there's a poem about that energy for the spiritual quest that I love very much from the poet Rilke. It's from about 100 years ago. This is what he said about this kind of quest. He says, you see, I want a lot. Maybe I want it all. The darkness of each endless fall, the shimmering light of each ascent. So many are alive who don't seem to care. Casual, easy, they move in the world as though untouched. But you take pleasure in the faces of those who know they thirst. You cherish those who grip you for survival. You are not dead yet. It's not too late to open your depths by plunging into them and drink in the life that reveals itself quietly there. It's a nice description of meditation, really. Drink in the life that reveals itself quietly. And so the Buddha went on that quest. He studied with the most advanced teachers of his kind, of the time, I should say, and he found them ultimately wanting. They taught yogic concentration. He proved very proficient in those disciplines, but there was something really lacking. And so he really went out on his own to look for something deeper. For him, he framed it as a way to transform and overcome suffering and to really know the deepest reality. 
You see some of the language he used. He was seeking, he said, the sublime, the supreme state of sublime peace. So he talked about that sometimes in terms of peace, seeking something beyond all suffering. And he, in this very powerful, beautiful story, was practicing for six years and then did come to this powerful awakening which has touched uh, millions, if not billions, of people. (coughs) He touched this understanding, which he expressed in a number of different ways, sometimes in terms of what leads beyond suffering, sometimes in terms of the nature of how everything is interdependent and interconnected, sometimes in terms of these deep qualities of wisdom and compassion and joy and love that are at our our center, expressed it in many, many ways. And he eventually decided that he wouldn't actually communicate anything about his awakening because he didn't think people would believe him because for him, the core of the teaching was letting go of all our stuff, mental and so forth. And he said, too simple. No one will, no one will believe it. No one will believe that our, this is our deeper nature and here's a way to go there. So he decided not to do anything, just to hang out in his own radiance, so to speak. And it's said that the king of the gods got anxious about that and came down and spoke to the Buddha and said, there are those with but, li- with but little dust over their eyes. They will listen to you. And he said, okay, I'll do it. And he taught for another 45 years. It's kind of funny in the story. You know, he doesn't argue. He doesn't say, are you sure? Have you done a careful empirical study of those with little <laughs> dust over their eyes? Um, you, just, you just kind of, well, I guess, what would you do if the king of the the gods, Brahman, came down and talked to you. Maybe you would, he probably was convincing in his own way. So the Buddha taught, and what is particularly interesting, this is really, I want to move to this theme of the path, the path to awakening, or the path to the end of suffering, is I think maybe what influences many of us to be here is that we have a sense of a very practical path to awaken, to come to those deeper qualities in ourselves. And it's practical and it's experiential. Many of us grew up with religious forms that were not so practical and maybe not so experientially based, uh, even though all traditions have practical and experiential basis. But certainly for myself, that's what really what, what drew me to meditation, that it was very direct, experiential, It was a a path that wasn't about believing something. It was really about exploring and finding what worked in my life and in the lives of my my friends. And so what's, uh, I think, very indicative of a path is that it makes our lives, in a sense, workable. If you think of what a path is, literally, a path is a part of the 
typically it's it's part of the wilds or part of a part of nature where a clearing has been established and where we can actually walk without impediment in a certain direction. This is really what a path is in the in the spiritual context. That in a sense it makes it makes uh, our entire lives workable. It says, okay, you have anger, you have frustration, it's workable. You can walk on the path with whatever arises in your experience. And it really is one way to see what a path is. It's something where we can continue to walk in the direction of awakening no matter what happens. And there are different teachings that will, and practices that will help us to keep on walking the path no matter what arises. We have doubts, do this. Want to work with speech? Want to keep, want to walk the path as a talking person? Here's what you do. And so you came to the retreat. Very good. <laughs> so I think that the, the, the sense of uh, these components of speech practice as an integral part of the path awakening I think is very, very timely for the kind of lives that we lead. And one of the interesting things that I have found is that speech practice wasn't really so explicitly developed with the different dimensions that we'll be presenting at this retreat in the original teachings of the Buddha. It's quite interesting. And I want to I talk about the... Um, the path of speech practice. And I want to do so by connecting it with the core understanding of what the path is in the Buddhist context. And that is that we, we essentially walk this path in three main ways. The first is we, and, and this really fills out what's called the Eightfold Path in the teachings of the Buddha. First, we ground ourselves ethically and we guide ourselves ethically. And this, this fills out three of the eight aspects of the Eightfold Path. It fills out the, the aspect of um, um, what's called right speech. It also fills out the aspect of right action, which is really the other ethical guidelines. And it fills out right livelihood. What I love also about the original teachings is that of the eight core aspects mentioned, as the key components of the path, speech is one of them. So to that extent, speech is right at the center of um, practice for 2,600 years. And this has always been interesting for me because sometimes I thought of the monks and the nuns as not talking that much, you know, kind of doing a lot of silent meditation. So why would they have speech practice as one of the eight core aspects of their path? It's kind of interesting when you think about it. But when you read these texts, you find they were talking quite a bit. They would practice a lot, but they were always getting invited to meals. And so they'd kind of meditate, and then they, you know, someone would give the word, hey, Anatta Pindakas invited us for dinner. Let's go. <laughs> and you find just continual, uh, they're going to meals, people ask them for help, and this is very similar to any, anyone who has gone to a Buddhist monastery in the Theravada tradition, uh, if you go to Thailand or a country like that, you would see that, that the, the monks and nuns actually spend a lot of time talking. 
They talk with people in the villages. They give guidance. They give advice. They talk with each other and so forth. So we have these three ethical dimensions to the path. And we also have three dimensions of the path which relate to meditation. We have what's called right uh, effort, which is really the effort to be aware. We have right uh, mindfulness and right concentration. And then lastly, we have two dimensions of the Eightfold Path which are related to the cultivation of wisdom. What's called right aspiration, or really the intention to develop spiritually and to develop in this direction. And then right understanding, a real understanding of the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom. And just one um, footnote in a way, I want to say a word about the phrase right that, that appears in right speech and so forth. I think it's not a great translation and that it's somewhat, as with many uh, Buddhist words, it somewhat comes from Victorian England where they had a different kind of sentiment than 21st century California, <laughs> I should say. And... Um, but the etymology, the, the word in Pali is sama, which is uh, Pali and Sanskrit are so-called Indo-European languages. And so they actually have a lot of commonalities with many of the words in English or other Western languages. So the word sama is very close in meaning to the word summary or summation. And it really so, and, and that's the word that's translated as right in all these right speech, right effort, and so forth. And I would translate it more as mature, or integrated, or you know, it's sort of like what's what's the, it's the summary statement of skillful speech, or the mature statement of skillful speech. So, I'd invite us to use the term something like mature, or um, fully integrated instead of the word right, if that, if that feels useful to you. So we have these three broad areas of training, and I find it very helpful to, just, to use those three areas, ethics, meditation, and wisdom, as the three broad areas of our speech practice that we'll be cultivating here at this retreat. What's interesting, as I mentioned before, is that the teachings that we have with the Buddha on speech are almost entirely in the first area. They're almost entirely in the area of ethical teachings. And that's, that's essentially what we, we have from the Buddha. Very, very useful. But what we'll be doing is filling out what does speech practice look like as a mindfulness practice, as a meditation practice? What does it look like as a wisdom practice? How do we develop that? So let me say a word about each of those three, and this will be, give us a kind of map for, some, for a lot of what we'll be doing for the rest of the retreat. So first of all, in terms of the ethical dimension of speech practice, the Buddha more or less gave four, sometimes five, core ethical guidelines for skillful speech. Here's one way that he expressed it in one of the texts. How does an untrue person speak as an untrue person? Here an untrue person speaks false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, and gossip. And how does a true person speak as a true person? Here a true person abstains from false speech, from malicious speech, from harsh speech, and from gossip. 
And sometimes you can hear four criteria there. And those are sometimes expressed in other ways. I think I have one other passage where it's expressed like this. And you can listen for these qualities. They're sometimes expressed negatively and sometimes expressed positively. And listen in this quote for what's the first uh, type of speech that one should abstain from is called false speech, which would be lying, basically. The second is, um, I think, malicious speech. Uh, the third is harsh speech. And the fourth is comes under the category, it's translated as gossip. So I'll, here's another passage. Abandoning false speech, one abstains from false speech, one speaks truth, adheres to truth, is trustworthy and reliable. One who is no deceiver of the world. Abandoning malicious speech, one abstains from malicious speech, one does not repeat elsewhere what one has heard here in order to divide those people from these, nor does one repeat to these people what one has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. Thus one is someone who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendship, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord, a speaker of words that promote concord. So you start to hear the positive expression of that. Abandoning harsh speech, one abstains from harsh speech. One speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable, as go to the heart, or courteous, desired by many and agreeable to many. And then the fourth criterion, abandoning gossip, one abstains from gossip, one speaks at the right time, speaks what is fact, speaks on what is good. At the right time, one speaks such words as are worth recording, reasonable, moderate, and beneficial. This is 2,600 years ago on, on wise speech. And in looking at those passages and other passages, I found a fairly simple way to talk about um, these four principles. I, I like to talk about them First, as being truthful. Second, as being helpful. Third, as being uh, warm in one's speech or coming from a loving heart. And fourth, as being appropriate, which could include not being distracted. It could include having good timing. The Buddha talked a lot about the importance of good timing in speech. And what's interesting about skillful speech, it has to have all four of these qualities. You could be truthful, helpful, kind, and have bad timing. And it might all be for naught, <laughs> and so forth. So it's interesting. It's really So let me talk a little bit about these uh, four qualities. And then I'll say a little bit about mindfulness and speech. So the first aspect is truthfulness. The first ethical guideline is being truthful. And that, in a, in a sense, is straightforward. It's sometimes said to be the outer expression of the clear mind. And tremendously, tremendously helpful. Uh, we can use these ethical guidelines partly to help us be more mindful. So if I take the ethical guideline to be truthful, I start looking at what I say, and what do I start noticing? Maybe all the times where I'm not so truthful. I might see some overt lies, but more likely, what will I see? Maybe 
What, what is not entirely truthful but not entirely a lie? Omission. Right. I might notice where I omit something, where I'm with a friend and I don't say something. That actually, if I, was in, if I had a motivation to be truthful, it might have been different. What else? Exaggeration. Exaggeration. Does anyone here exaggerate? <laughs> I never do. A few people caught that. <laughs> so, um, exaggerations, what else? What? Saying something that might be politically correct or fitting some kind of a, a model that actually isn't truthful. I, I may be saying something to create an impression or fit someone, fit into a conformist uh, mode. So we can, we can use this criterion of truthfulness as an aid to mindfulness. You know, when we take on these guidelines, we start noticing things more carefully. And we might notice them even in the days here as we take on those guidelines. And we can, we can develop that mindfulness by taking every moment when we say, oh, I'm not entirely truthful. And we can look and say, what's there? What's my motivation? What's going on? What's going on inside right now? You know, with not so much from the standpoint of blaming, but just really to inquire, to look. And I think we, we know why not telling the truth is a problem, right? Why is not telling the truth a problem? What? You get caught. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, the response we have so far is that the reason why we shouldn't lie is because the consequences are bad if we get caught. Okay. Please. You're just like living in a circus. You're not going. Yeah. That we may be, the um, response is we live, live on the surface, so we may lie to ourselves about what we really want, for example. Uh, another, please. It can lead to more lying. Yeah, it's a great, it's, um, I think we all know that not telling the truth is actually way more complicated than telling the truth, right? In fact, people who tell a lot of lies have difficulty meditating. <laughs> because, why? Because the mind is, has to be so active to remember what you said to which person and do this, and it gets very complicated, right? It can be very com. Yeah, anyone have personal experience with that? No one here, but <laughs> yeah. yes. You might not tell the truth because the timing is not right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right now, for right now, we're meaning actually uh, to tell a lie. We're focusing on either telling a lie or being in one of these half-truths or exaggerations. But you're right, it might, there is the question of timing. So that really points to the way that telling the truth by itself is not enough of a guide for wise speech, which is a really important point. And so these other three are also necessary. So the second is to have the quality of helpfulness. That's the way I interpret it. And so we can be very, very truthful but not helpful. That, that might mean, you know, in uh, slang we would say that would be something like dumping on someone. You know, or we, 
we, we can be truthful out of meanness, right? And so these other criteria start to be very crucial. Can my speech not only be truthful, but also be helpful? And we can really ask, is my, is my speech helpful as well as truthful? You know, that I can, um, again, see when I'm being more negative and ask using mindfulness what's there, what's in me. So a lot of these ethical, the ethical guidelines function in many ways as wake-up calls, as light bulbs that go on. You know, it's like uh, my friend Diana Winston said she was going to write a book using as the line of uh, the title of the book a very common line among Buddhists, which is, I'm not sure this is wise speech, but... (laughs) And uh, that may may go in all sorts of directions, but we want it, we we can, we can, and and hopefully for her, saying something like that was a wake-up call, but these guidelines function in our lives, and I'm sure that they function in this way for many of you already, but certainly uh, during the retreat and after the retreat, these guidelines can help wake us up to say, look over there, or look at yourself right now. I can, I can tell, I might say, that I'm going against one of the ethical guidelines. What's happening for me right now? Let me look within. Let me, let me inquire. Not, again, not in a judging way, but just to see what's there. And really the spirit of all this is exploration. It's not using these ethical guidelines as, uh, what, standards to hit ourselves over the head, but as principles for inquiry and mindfulness. That's really a crucial point. The third aspect of um, wise speech is being loving, having a sense of warmth or kindness really... um, connected with our speech, coming, coming from a good heart, we might say. And again, it doesn't mean necessarily um, just being a nicey-nice person. We can be, come from a warm heart and be very firm or be very direct. And when you read the text of the Buddha, presumably there was care and love, but he's often very direct and you know, even says, hey, you don't follow that course of action. That's not going to lead anywhere good can be very, very direct. But the third criterion is asking, where's my heart really? Where's my heart as I'm speaking? And this, this, of course, goes along well with our cultivation of the practice of loving kindness. And it's really inviting our speech to have that quality as well, to be connected with our heart. And then the fourth uh, criterion I summarize as appropriateness. It has to do with good timing, with asking, is my speech distracted? Am I just lost in some kind of um, chattering? And really to ask that question. Again, it can be a wake-up call to ask, what is the nature of my speech right now? Where am I coming from? And we we know that a lot of the forces that lead to unwise speech don't just come from our own personal problems, but they're very strongly conditioned in the culture, right? How many houses just have TVs on all the time? 
can be a kind of perpetual distraction. Or we may have ourselves, we may just continually want electronic input. You know, we can ask about that. Or, you know, how much truthfulness is there in certain parts of our society? When I was working on a book on the application of speech practice in part to social issues, I found this very, very horrible quotation, I thought, from the US Solicitor General. There was a case where um, a woman named Jennifer Harbury, who was a lawyer from Harvard, had been married to uh, a gorilla living in um, uh, Guatemala who was later killed by the CIA. And she made a Freedom of Information Act request of the government to find out what happened and the involvement of the US government. And the US Solicitor General at the time, this was in 2002, testified before the Supreme Court that said, let me see if I have the actual quotation here, I think. He said, he warned the court to use utmost caution before interpreting the Constitution as guaranteeing citizens a truthful response to inquiries of the government. He added that it was easy to imagine an infinite number of situations where government officials might quite legitimately have reasons to give false information. So not to say that they're not complicated issues there, but that was stunning for me to hear a defense of not being truthful. You know? And I think I'll leave the political point right there and, and move on. <laughs> But it's, that was, it was very stunning to, to see that. So we can work with these practices in a variety of ways, work with these principles in all sorts of ways. Um, we can see which of the four am I best at. At times, I've worked with these four principles with uh, meditation groups, sometimes for as much as three months at a time. And I would uh, really try to see where was I better, which of the four was I better at, which was I weaker at. And I found that I was really, really good at being truthful, but particularly when I got busy, I wasn't always so warm or helpful. Kind of predictable, right? And so we can, we can inquire into ourselves, where do we need more attention? We can use the principles before meetings. You know, I, I sometimes would go to meetings and I'd write on a piece of paper truthful, helpful, kind, good timing on a piece of paper and have it right before me in the middle of the meeting. I had one student who wrote the four words in her hand every time she was about to talk to her teenage daughter. I would stand there talking to her teenage daughter, looking at the four words, and she said it helped a lot. <laughs> you know, so we can use, we can use these uh, principles in all sorts of creative ways. I would sometimes, I would have them, for a while I had them uh, by my telephone, and I would hear the telephone ring, ding, 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 and I would go, truthful, helpful, kind, good timing, hello. And I think it helped some, helped quite a bit. So we can really, that's, um, we can use the, those principles in that way. We can also use them, as I was mentioning, and this I want to uh, just speak briefly about the practice of mindfulness. We can also use these um, 
principles to help us look, as I was saying earlier. We can use them as like the, as like the light bulb that goes on. I'm speaking, I might be speaking tomorrow morning, and I notice, hmm, I sure exaggerated that one, didn't I? And then we can just say, okay, let me just look, what's there? What was my motivation? And just like right on the spot, really try to look carefully at the, at the qualities that are there. And so this second dimension of mindfulness is really, really crucial. And I think it's something that I think I will actually uh, just be very, very brief now and we'll finish and have a chance to go into the walking meditation and say more, say more tomorrow. But the, the quality of mindfulness is, and, and the dimension of wisdom practice with speech, these two other areas, I think I'm going to continue uh, to talk about that tomorrow rather than go over time now. But these really can f- start filling out the quality of wise speech in ways that go beyond the ethical teachings that we had with the Buddha uh, and can start to say, how do I practice right here in a way in which I can look inside and practice mindfulness as I'm speaking? And then the wisdom practice is we can start to ask how in using my speech practice can I learn more about how my speech either gets me caught in suffering or helps me transform suffering. I can ask how does my speech tend to um, keep on manufacturing my sense of self and my sense of being different and self-centered and separate from others. And, and I can ask, how does my sense of speech rest on certain confusions about permanence and impermanence? I won't, those are kind of teasers. I won't say so much uh, further, except to say that potentially our speech practice can be grounded in these ethical principles, and we can use the ethical principles to help us be more mindful. And we can also start to cultivate the ability that I started to mention at the beginning of the talk, which is the ability to be both present and mindful in an inward way as we're interacting and talking outwardly. This is something that I think may have been presupposed by the Buddha, but it's not explicit. So when we offer these practices, this is really coming from Donald and Oren, not from Buddha, just so we're clear. (laughs) But I think it's very very much in the spirit, and it really is, to me, it's filling some missing pieces in, which is that how do we actually cultivate mindfulness and speak at the same time? How do we do that? So that's what we'll be exploring tomorrow. And we'll be bringing in some of the wisdom teachings in further days to to fill out this sense of being able to uh, practice by this uh, working with all three of those dimensions, the ethical dimension, the dimension of meditation and mindfulness, and thirdly, the wisdom dimension. I think I will just stop here and let's, uh, excuse me. Well, after your retreat, 
means the number of people who are wanting more science. <laughs> Uh, we won't we won't take a poll, but we will take silence. <laughs> we will let's just take about two or three minutes of silence just to let the talk settle. Most of the evenings we'll be having talks without questions and answers, but we'll have chances in the morning to look into any questions which arose from the talk. So that our sense is that it's sometimes better just to let things settle than to go immediately to, to talking. So we'll invite that kind of settleness. A few of the evenings we will have time for, uh, we will make room for questions. But for tonight, we'll just invite that talk to sit with you for a few minutes now. I'd like to finish with another expression of these core ethical teachings on speech. Here, there are actually not four factors mentioned, but five, which we can see as really fitting into the the model of the four of being truthful, helpful, kind, and having good timing. A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. So thank you for your kind attention. And we have now a little under 25 minutes of walking. And then we'll come back at 9 for loving kindness practice, which will go till 9.30. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.